If you're the only one in your book club who wants to read books that will change your life, you need a new book club. And we think you found it. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And can we be the first to say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Here we are continuing in our story where Abraham last week, and just, just a little note, He's Abram currently in our story. Yeah, I've been God's really going to change his name. He's going to change his name, but he's still Abram in our story right now. So he knew what was right and he got himself back on the path and he did it by erecting an altar or going back to an altar that he had erected, calling on the name of the Lord and then listening to the name of the Lord. And that's the same thing that we can do in our lives. So we continue in our story this week in Genesis 14. I call this one Abraham, the nation and the name. And that's really the whole point of this whole thing. Abraham's going to become that nation and name that was promised. So story setting, Abraham is back in Canaan where he belongs. And I'm going to lay out for you what happens here because it's all of kind of, it's, it's kind of like this just side story that all of a sudden happens and nobody ever really stops to think like, why did this happen? There's going to be a war. It is Abraham's first battle and it is not a religious war. It is a war like so many other wars that is fought over land. We're in Canaan, which again, remember, is Palestine today. And it's the same land they're still fighting over today. Exactly. In fact, as we are recording this right now, there's tensions flaring at the moment in yes, Egypt over that little strip of land. The, the strip Gaza of land strip. that has been fought over more than any strip of land in the world. Canaan refers to an area that includes all of Palestine, some of Syria, and some of Jordan. This is the area where so much of the history of mankind unfolds. It's about the size of Vermont or New Jersey. So it is small, Very small. by our standards. But Palestine has been the motherland of the relig- of religion for the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. And I find that so sad, that point that you just said about history starting there and it's just so war-torn right now and so broken and how many things are being lost Mm -hmm. that are really historically significant that is sad today obviously this land is fought over because of religious reasons but back then it was really about trade control it was for the land because of its geographical position canaan was the hot spot for trade between uh, asia and the east side of the mediterranean so if you think of like England as the outpost of Europe on the east side of the Atlantic. At that point, the Mediterranean was on the north and west leads to Europe, Greece, Italy, France, and Spain. And we're going to get into those in the New Testament. But at this point, the world is small and Canaan is the major connector to the two most fertile areas of the time, Asia and Africa, or as they were called, Mesopotamia and Egypt. And the balance of power between the Babylonians from Mesopotamia and the Egyptians results in this shifting oppression for the Israelites throughout all of the Old Testament. There is pressure from both of those powers. And guess what? Canaan is right in the middle and they were both prosperous. And so the trade routes were right there in Canaan. 
These two international highways that I'm talking about that were the trade routes connected these two big areas, Egypt and Mesopotamia, both in that coveted territory. One was called the International Coastal Highway. And of course, you'd expect it ran along the coast starting in Egypt and extending north into northern Mesopotamia. The King's Highway was on the east side of the Dead Sea, and it went from the top of the Gulf of the Red Sea all the way up to Damascus. Um, And this is the area where Lot chose to live. He chose to live kind of in the area of the uh, King's Highway. Abraham is currently on the other side of the Dead Sea, a little bit closer to the Coastal Highway. Now, there are four attackers in this story, and they are the four kings from the north and east of Mesopotamia. So they're in that Mesopotamia region, and they want control of the King's Highway, which is the highway where Lot is closest to. Now, there are victims in our story, and they are the five kingdoms called the cities of the plain. And the four kings of the north and Mesopotamia are going to attack the five kings of the cities of the plain near where Lot is. They're located around the southern end of the Dead Sea, right where it cuts over into Egypt. If you guys could see Heather's eyes, they're like bugging oh, out. Oh, this is just a lot well, of geography a lot, but, and a lot of history. But if you're and listening I right was, now. I liked history, but geography kind of, you already had me a little mind blown. So I'm exactly. just kind of like, whoa. I know there's a reason she's setting this all up for I, us because it's all going to make sense I in promise. a minute, but I'm just kind of like, whoa. Ah, so you're, what I want you to know when you're reading about this, this is the area you're in. And there's a map, map 21. We're putting it in there from um, the Homo Bi- Holman Bible. Thank you, Jesus, Bible. for the maps. Yeah, the map that shows you. Because if you look at this area, it's still the same area we're dealing with today. So it's just fascinating. All right. So we have our five, we have our four attacking kings who are going to try to, actually going to defeat these five kingdoms called the Cities of the Plain to take over territory. So they have this straight shot to Egypt without any problem. That's their goal. It's all about the land. In this chapter at the end, there's going to be this like victory party, which is another total aside because it's like a scene out of Lord of the Rings with this strange Gandalf-like figure in my head swooping in and his name is Melchizedek and he comes out of nowhere and he's very mysterious and he makes this appearance that seems important, but we don't know why. And we're going to find out why. And I'm going to jump to the New Testament. I'm going to explain it. But if you've ever heard Melchizedek and you've never understand why he's a big deal, this is where he first shows up. But in the New Testament, he becomes a big deal, even though his part is so small and he just, again, swoops in and we don't really understand it here. But And this is coming. one thing I think is really cool about studying this is that if you had never pointed that out, this is something that it's such a such a fast thing in the Bible. You will miss it. Yeah, it's like the Nephilim. Remember when I talked about the Nephilim? They have this like one little part and we're like, who are they? And then, you know, it kind of, if you study it, you understand why. Well, this it, is, Melchizedek is a big deal and we're going to find out why. So we're going to start with Abraham, the nation and the name. And first we have the invaders. At the time when Armaphel was king of Shinar, Aranach, king of Eleazar, Kelimregar, king of Elam, and Ty- 
title king of Goyim, these kings went to war against. All right, those are those are our four big Mesopotamian kings, and they're the invaders. And here are victims: Bera, king of Sodom; Bersha, king of Gomorrah; Shinob, king of Adma; Sheber, king of Zeboim; and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these later kings joined forces in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kalanabor, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Right. So, Kedorlamor. Yeah, I'm going to just mispronounce it. every single one of these names. <laughs> and if you want to know who I'm talking about, just go read it for had yourself. They already <laughs> subjected these five lesser kings. And uh, now they're coming together because they, they want their land back. So, the invaders now are going to conquer even more. In the 14th year, Kalanabor and the kings allied with him and went out and defeated defeated the Rephites in Azareth Karanim and the Zutites in Ham, the Emites in Shavakirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enfishat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Almachalites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazan Tamar. So they're just eating up territory. And now our victims, our lesser kings, are going to retaliate. Heather is making faces about these names. These names are brutal. So hard. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. See, why can't they just call them the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah? Those names I know. <laughs> yeah. The king of Adma, the king of Zebium, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Caerlamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Arafel, king of Shinar, and Aranok, king of Elazar, the four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. All right, so big hint here. Uh, they've made a very big point that four kings defeated five, and that a man escaped and reported this to Abram. So we already are having a hint that Abram must have been important. Like, why would they go to Abram other than the fact that maybe they knew that nephew, that Lot was his nephew? I don't know. So here we now have in our story, the defender, the hero. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Ishkal and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative has been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Huba, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the woman and the other people. All right. Now it's getting good. I know, exactly. So exciting. Abraham has clearly become a great nation and a great name. What God has promised is now fact. And, and here's our validation of that. 
remember, he promised this in Genesis 12 too. I will make you great name, great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. He has already become a blessing to these lesser kings. He has rescued them from the hands of Mesopotamian people, which we know that's where the Babylons came from. They're, they're just, you know, that's where the Tower of Babel was and all those people. They're just not good people. He is a great nation. He has 318 trained men. It doesn't say men in total. It says trained men. How many other men does he have? We don't know. Old men, untrained men, maybe double. How many women and children does he have then if he has that many trained men? Maybe he had become a population of well over a a thousand roaming around the plains. All right. This war has now proven that he has a great name. A, like I said, why would this guy travel all the way to Abram to tell him this is going on if he weren't already becoming a great name? But to be one guy, not even a king, who defeats the four kings who defeated five kings. That's huge. He's just one guy. He's never even been in a war that we know of. But he was smart enough to train a whole entire army around him. No, he definitely had protection for his people. And did you think it was funny back there, uh, verse 13, where all the other times it just calls him Abram, but then it called him Abram the Hebrew. Do you think there's significance in that? I didn't even notice that. Could be, because that's probably how they knew him. That's very cool. Oh yeah, Abram the Hebrew. Mm, Nice. Already making a name for himself. Well, because he's in this other land and he's he's technically right. a foreigner right. Because, right. but he's endearing himself to all these kings because he's getting them out of all these messes right. so maybe they're willing to contribute people to this army that he's training and he did have alliances we know that so he had made friends with the people that he was living near he had trained men he had grown his name is great and now it's even greater because he's defeated these four kings So how had Abraham, or Abram at this point, sorry, become a great nation and name? Abram became a great name through faith. And here's the reality of even for us today. Faith cultivates wisdom and wisdom brings opportunity because we know from the lesson of the talents, if you do much with what God gives you, he will give you more. Mm -hmm. And then in this case, the opportunity made him a great nation with a great name because people started to hear about him. What kind of character did he have? Well, at this point, he's selfless. He did not hold it against Lot that he had made a selfish choice to live in Sodom. He could have easily said, well, that's what you get, Lot. (laughs) Instead of going to save him. (laughs) Exactly. He was very courageous. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose as he was severely outnumbered. He was competent. He had assembled a large and prosperous household with an army of his own. He was collaborative. He had good relations with neighbors who were willing to fight with him. He was discerning. His plan was strategic and well executed. And he has humility, as we're going to see in the next section. He takes nothing so that God would receive glory for his prosperity. He learned his lesson from Pharaoh. Unless God gives it to me, I don't want it. Because wasn't it customary that when they defeated an army, they got to take all the spoils with them, right? Including the women and children. And the men would become slaves. But yes, Mm -hmm. everything was yours. Obviously, they were pretty ruthless back then. All right. Here comes the uh, victory party, a.k.a. Gandalf. (laughs) Gandalf's going to swoop in. The mysterious Melchizedek. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kalanobador and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the Valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkul, and Mamer. Let them have their share." Abram is being extremely disciplined and faithful. Lots of goods here for the taking, but he doesn't take them. This is the pattern modeled throughout the Bible. For example, David in 1 Samuel twice could have taken Saul, taken from Saul what God had promised him. And Jesus, who was tempted by Satan to rule over all the kingdoms of the world that God had already promised to him, realized it was an inferior shortcut to avoid the cross. Somehow Abram knew that this was not the way to God's promise. And we have to take that lesson to heart. (laughs) The shortcut is not the good way. But what I really want to talk about is the mysterious Melchizedek, a.k.a. Gandalf. Gandalf. I think this is has to be one of those things that happened in Abraham's life that later he was like, wow, what was that? Who was that? What was that guy's name? And it, and it had to be, I don't know, a spirit filled mm-hmm. moment or whatever, because he just gives him money. Like he he recognizes him as a priest. And I think Abraham probably pondered this one his whole life. Was tithing even a thing no, back then? No, I'm going to get to that. So the Israelites, must have too because his name reappears. So the Israelites must have come to realize that this Melchizedek was sent directly from God because his name is going to reappear again in Psalms and then nine times in Hebrews where we're going to get further elucidation of what he represented. But here's what we know about the mysterious Melchizedek from this Genesis verse. We know that he was king of Salem, which means king of peace. Hello, we know there's a king of peace to come. He was a priest of the most high God, and this is the first reference ever even to a priest. So how do you just show up at a party and say, I'm a priest? And what does that mean to people when you tell them? I don't know how this all went down. Then he refreshes with bread and wine and blesses Abraham, similar, of course, to Christ, the bread, the wine. Mm -hmm. Abraham offers him a tithe of 10%. This is the first tithe, and it honors Melchizedek as greater. So he's giving it to him as if Melchizedek had a greater part in the war or something. I don't know. Now, here's what we know about the mysterious Melchizedek from other verses. Psalm 110.4 says this, and this is David, we think, speaking in this psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So one, he is the first in the order of Melchizedek Melchizedek, and a forerunner to Christ. All right. So now Melchizedek has gone from being this first high priest 
to being the order of Melchizedek. This verse is a prophecy of David about Christ. David saw a vision and it was that Christ would not be of the order of Aaron, which is Aaron's coming. He's going to be the Levitical from the house of Levi. Remember, we're going to end up with 12 sons from Jacob who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those is going to be the represent the priesthood from the line of Aaron, who is Moses's brother. So what he's saying here is that Christ would not be a priest. He would be from the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. Christ is not going to be from a a Levite. He's going to be from the house of Judah, we know. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be a priest and a king. And he was going to reign forever. This is also supported in Hebrews 5, 6 through 10 and 620. So they also mentioned the order of Melchizedek. There's lots of verses. You can check them out. I'm not going to cover all of them. The other ones mention this same kind of verse. Now, number two. So first I told you, you know, this order of Melchizedek is a forerunner to Christ. Number two, here's why the order of Melchizedek is so important in the New Testament. It was to prove that there was a case for Jesus to be both the king and the priest, that intercessor for us. So in Hebrews 7, 1 through 26, let me tell you the backstory in Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians, possibly priests, who were considering returning to Judaism. So remember, a lot of people in the Gospels and everything um, and and, um, Acts become believers, and then some of them start to doubt, and they get caught between the Jewish law and this new law they were under with the new covenant of Jesus. Well, it it starts to get hard for them because they're persecuted, and so they think about going back. And Paul's just urging them to stay the course. Right. So a lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews, some say Barnabas, some say Apollos. We just don't know. It's a little bit different to be Paul, but that was a traditional thought, but there's a lot of others. So I'm not going to discuss who wrote it, but it was definitely being written to Jewish Christians, they think. So in verse seven, in chapter seven, sorry, verse one of Hebrews, it says this. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. So the point one they're making to the Jews is this. Guess what? He was king of Salem. And wait, and guess where Jerusalem is? It's Salem. Salem was Jerusalem before Jerusalem was it Jerusalem. to Salem. Right. Or so it changed saying, from Salem to saying Jerusalem. God was showing us something. Christ is the replacement of Melchizedek. He is from the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem and Jesus is the promised king of the Jews whose temple was in Jerusalem. He's going to rent that curtain to the temple. He's going to give them access to God. So let me get this straight. Melchizedek was the king, but he's also the priest, priest and he's foreshadowing of Christ to the Jews so that they would recognize the fact that Jesus was both a king and a priest. Correct. Because they'd been relying for years and years and years and years on the priests were the Levites. They came from Aaron and Jesus did not come from he Aaron's came from the line. line of Judah. He came from the line of a Judah. brother. Exactly. Yep. And so, you know, when they're saying he's our new high priest, of course, the Jews are struggling with that. How could he be a priest? He's not a Levite. he's not a Levite. And gotcha. then, so they're bringing up this, well, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. And so is Jesus going to be. So keep going. That's point one. That's why it's important to the Jews. 
He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. All right. So remember, we're in Hebrews now. We're in the New Testament and we have Barnabas, Apollo, Paul. We don't know who it is arguing with the Jews. Let go of the Levitical thing. (laughs) Jesus can be our high priest. And so point two he's making to them is Melchizedek had no genealogy and yet Abraham accepted him. Okay, he's saying Jesus does not have Levitical genealogy. Accept him. It's okay. He's from the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi or order of Aaron. He, he came from nowhere and disappeared like Gandalf and is a priest forever. <laughs> like Christ, he was a righteous king and a king of peace, just like Jesus. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus. So that was point two that he was making to them. Going on, verse four in Hebrews. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Okay, that's crazy. I know. (laughs) Just don't go there. But you know, the Israelites, it's very important to them who came from whom, and, and the two points here that they're saying is all of this builds a case that there is a precedent for one greater than Abraham. Remember, the Jews hung their hat on Abraham was it. And yet they're saying clearly and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying in this case, it was Melchizedek because the lesser is blessed by the greater and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And so why would why did Abraham give him that that gift? Because he realized he was the greater priest. He was the priest, even though we didn't have the Levitical priesthood back then. He recognized him as a high priest. He was just really listening to God and God told him to oh, do it. Yeah. So he did it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Was he like later going, wow, what happened? Why did I do this? What does this mean? He was Who is just... this guy? Or did they have this big, long conversation? Hey, I'm from the Lord and I'm a high priest. And let me tell you what a priest does. I'm I'm going to bless you because you were good job, guy. I don't know. I don't know. You're going to give me money. I don't know. So I don't think he asked for it. I think Abraham just knew that he needed to give it. Right. He recognized him as this foreshadowing of the seed that was going to come one day. That's so cool. Yeah. Verse 11, if perfection, remember we're back in Hebrews. We're still in Hebrews. Still in Hebrews. <laughs> we, have, we have left Genesis behind people. <laughs> we'll get back to that. But, but now, Hebrews, verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? 
For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near God. Point four, importance to the Jews. He's pointing out here that, again, this is our better hope, that God had this planned all the time. And that's why we have this short, random story of Melchizedek in the life of Abraham, because they loved Abraham. And God knew that they would need another example because he had no intention of the high priest, the eternal high priest coming from the house of Levi. It was going to come from the house of Judah. And that's what he's saying here. Here is the precedent. It is Melchizedek. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. First, I just want to say I love how two of our 11 verses of Melchizedek, one, the only two in the Old Testament, one is from Abraham, the founding father of the Hebrew nation, and the other is from the greatest king they ever had, David. Mount. Oh, David. David. Oh, David in the David Psalm. David is the one in the Psalm. That he wrote that. And, the, and he quotes it right here. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So God knew that many Jews would struggle with this. And he gave them two of their greatest forefathers to back it up. Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because it is eternal. It is permanent. Okay, keep going while we finish up here on this complicated <laughs> section of Hebrews. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And this last point is the greatest of all, because this is the one that applies to us. When he says such a high priest truly meets our need, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. He sacrificed for our sins once and for all when he offered himself. 
himself. Remember, the Jews have been living under this constant state of having to sacrifice animals every time they sinned. And what they're saying here is, hey, it's over. This was God's plan for us all along, that this would come to end. This covering of sin from the beginning of Adam and Eve, when the animals had to be killed to cover them with clothing, it's going to stop with Jesus. I keep thinking about how every time Jesus told a parable to the disciples or to when he was teaching and then later the disciples would pull him aside and be like, hey, can you like explain to us what you were talking about back there? And he'd be like, oh, you guys, do you not understand anything? This guy's just much more patient, but he's kind of like, you guys have got this wrong. You don't get it. Yeah. But you know, the the whole Melchizedek thing, if you just read that in the New Testament and you didn't totally know what it meant. It's gibberish. Like, what are they talking about here? You could really trip over that. Yeah. And so that's why I hope you were tracking with us as because that got really complicated. But that is a Bible bender to end all Bible benders, because it really is the whole point that Susan just made that connection for you and wrapped up the whole Bible with a pretty bow on it. And we're going to get back to Genesis next week. We took a little departure there, but it was a very, very important one because it helps you understand why all of this matters. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.